0: Welcome back to The Rural Roundup, hosted by me, Kerry Hammond. This show is produced in association with the Scottish Government. This episode was recorded on Tuesday 20th February 2024, and all information considered correct to this date. On today's episode, Robert, Tiffany and George are joined by Professor Stephen Thompson from SRUC's Rural Policy Centre. They discuss the potential future landscape of funding, common grazings and smallholders, policy and pressures around greenhouse gas emissions, and value chain need for reduced emissions and increased biodiversity. Discussion touches on the next generation of farmers and how policy can encourage young people into the industry.
1: Great to see you again, Robert and George. And even more exciting, we have joined by Stephen Thompson. How are you doing, Stephen?
2: Pretty good. I'm speaking to you from Shetland today.
1: I feel like that sounds much more exciting than being in the borders.
2: Well, it's part of, it's part of a project looking at the potential impacts of agricultural policy on the Western Isles, Orkney and Shetland. Um, and part of the dilemma I have is trying to work out how future agricultural policy plays out on common grazing and things like that.
1: Has there been much looking into um, crofters and common grazing so far, or is this something you're just starting to get your teeth into?
2: Um, I suppose, from a policy perspective, it hasn't really been top of the agenda because the uh, policy have probably been focusing more on getting the framework and the sort of the main elements of what future support looks like. But the more I delve into it, the more I, the more I have questions as to how we get a conditional um, future support payments uh, working for common grazings. So uh, some, some so a group of consultants and um, stakeholders, we're trying to get our heads together to try and work this out as to what we think might be the most appropriate way forward.
3: I'm, I'm from the Northeast. Um, we don't have such a thing as common grazings. Um, can you just explain just what are the trials and tribulations that you you find with common grazing so
2: so on the common grazing the 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 key the key issue is uh, under future conditional support payments in tier 2 you have you have potentially not all of the money being drawn into the common grazing which means that those that are active on the common grazing suddenly having to do all of the conditions for less money than say a, a hill farmer or a, an arable farmer We'd be getting so. So there are some really, really difficult uh, issues that we need to iron out on common reasons, and I'm I'm by no means an expert on it. But uh, the more I more I'm looking into it, the more more uh, more challenging I see it.
4: Is there a thing here, Stevie? So from previous conversations we've had, looking at the future of agricultural support, obviously, climate change is at the the top of the agenda are very important on the agenda crofting is different so it matters it's really important it's a big part of what we are as a country you know culturally very important but in terms of emissions there's a lot of people with a relatively small amount of stock and is there a do you think there's a case where on the emissions end of things there's more hassle there's more work goes into trying making reductions on on these multiple or thousands of small units would we be better to accept at this stage that on that scale we focus on conservation stuff on other stuff and don't get bogged down in the in the emissions thing or are we all in this in the future do you see it where we're all in the climate change target scenario Um well, th- those are
2: the dilemmas everybody's been having, and even in the the, the Scottish suckler beef support scheme reforms, where the discussions about calving intervals, these discussions have been had. Do all cows matter? Uh, I'm an advocate that small herds are are most challenged because they may be reliant on renting a bull for somebody or or a department bull if you're a crofter, um, and e- equally. Uh, there's a lot of biodiversity net gain or biodiversity benefits from having these animals grazing on the Macher in other areas uh, on the west coast, et cetera. So I've al- always advocated that we should, have, we should have a biodiversity grazing scheme within the, the future, if we have future uh, voluntary coupled support in, in the beef sector. On your wider question about the overall emissions, um, again, you come back to the issue of lots of smallholders suddenly having to potentially jump through lots of hoops. And that's where this idea of a smallholder light scheme uh, or a derogation so that you don't have to do all of the same things that uh, a larger business would be would, would have to do uh, is coming in from. And at the last ARIO uh, meeting uh, in December, the Scottish Government officials said that they were actually starting to consider. Uh, or starting to look at the options of uh, of a, a smallholder type scheme uh, the issue is if you make it area based then the number of hectares are, the, the payment levels are going to be vastly different if you're if you say uh, 20 hectares of region one it's totally different in monetary terms from 20 hectares of region three land which only gets about 10 or 11 pounds per hectare so so there are there are again some challenges in there, but you're right in terms of the productive emissions. But you can't forget that the, the common grazings in these smallholders, called crofters, control very large areas of land, and some of that is uh, peatland, degraded peatland areas, but also some of it is probably some of the the highest um, habitat potential uh, and, and biodiversity rich um, areas in Scotland.
4: Yeah, just for context, and you're the guy to ask this Is so it's 10% of agri- agricultural land in, in Scotland is common grazing, but what percentage of IAX businesses or of, of SAF claimants? Oh, are you're crops? asking
2: me that question and I should know the answer because we've just been analysing the data. I, I can't honestly tell you about three and a half, four thousand, I think. And. Um,
4: yeah. it's it's a lot more Indeed, than 10% so if you're claims. talking about
2: 18,000 claimants a, a number off the top of my head um, is about three and a half four thousand. 4,000 it's quite difficult sometimes to pull this apart because um, you may have mainland mainland farms or you may have farms in the, the crofting counties that may also have a, a croft associated with them um, so it passed down through the family or they may live in a croft but have also got a, an operational farm And actually, when you start looking at the claim data, it it just shows you how complex it is and how difficult the the job that ARPA do in in administering all of this actually is.
3: We've seen in the past that, um, certainly when Greening, when Greening first came out in 2015, the three-crop rule, it was revised down to two-crop rule for smaller holdings. So there is a precedent for doing things like that, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's like, and, and the, the, there's a derogation that if you're under fifteen hectares of arable, then you don't have any. Yeah. yeah. So so we actually could lift that tomorrow if you wanted conditionality on all cropland. um. But you know we have we have these because the the administrative cost and the actual the, the benefits uh, when you've got lots of small small holders doing things, it costs them a lot more money per unit or per per pound of money received. Uh, to enter schemes. So if we, we suddenly have things like a whole farm plan to complete with carbon audits and habitat assessments and all of the things that are associated with just getting over the starting line, then those come at higher higher unit cost for smallholders. So, so thats that's the argument and then it won't just be for crofters, it's for smallholders all over the place. And you mentioned the northeast and the northeast has got a very high number of smallholders uh, claiming claiming in the system.
4: see so we've, we've we've covered crofting a fair bit but obviously we're, we're covering the the wider story as well and what i wondered so you mentioned whole farm plans and carbon audits and this is definitely a stevie thompson crystal ball question that we, we obviously can't hold you to it but if we go let's f- we've obviously got reform to come but if we look 10 years down the line what do you see as being the kind of key things that farmers are going to have to have by that stage in terms of whole farm plans how does that look in in your mind and what else might we need to have
2: um forget policy the private sector is going to drive the industry there anyway so the policy the way i the way i see policy just now is that it it's enabling and it's it's a bit of is it crystal ball gazing in some sectors it is it's it's Supporting farmers and enabling farmers and crofters uh, to continue to supply uh, in the private sector. Um, so you're seeing it in the dairy industry um, already. You've got carbon audits, you've got biodiversity. You know, there's a huge list of environmental conditions that come on that. You're seeing it in the finance sector, where if you're borrowing money, then the bank wants to know what your carbon footprint is and how that money is going to support you in reducing emissions on or increasing biodiversity on, on your, your farm. So those sectors are already moving there. You're starting to see it in the cereal sector where some of the maltsters are playing for carbon audits to be done. Next thing they're going to be asking for uh, think elements uh, are paying premiums to, to, to reduce um, overall emissions by, by doing certain activities. So it's already coming, and, and this whole idea of these scope three emissions, which is cradle to grave within your your food supply chain, uh, that's going to drive more and more of this. So in ten years' time, government will probably not have to worry about trying to trying to cajole people into doing a carbon audit, a habitat assessment, an uh, animal health and welfare, plant soil soil testing, etc. I think those are coming. Uh, regardless of policy, they'll they'll come in the long term in our food chain. Um, and those will be requirements. It will be the, the new standard uh, that, that people will just have to get used to. And um, So th- those are the elements that will be there. Um, and whether the Scottish government or any government need to continue with those elements over the long period is a different thing.
1: I almost feel like it's going to make change happen quicker when you're going to be getting paid more for your grain or you're able to enter into a contract with a dairy if you're already doing these things. I think people are probably going to pick it up quicker rather than waiting until they have to have it done because they'll be seeing the benefits there. A
2: hundred percent, Tiffany. Um and again, if you look at the dairy sector, there's, you know, the, the, the rumour mill is saying that methane, inhibit, well, methane inhibitors have been um, signed off for use in this country. So, um, and, and the rumour mill is that some of the, the retailers are already um, going to be paying their farmers to use those methane inhibitors. Change, change in the private sector will, will come faster than anybody thinks. Because remember, the retailers have all signed up to their own commitments. To reduce emissions, to improve biodiversity, etc. etc. And if they've signed up to them and they, they believe them at a corporate level, they'll drive those changes. The, the biggest challenge I see in all of it is how does that fit in with a stratified sheep and beef sector where we've got store producers or um, people uh, breeding lambs, cat and calves and selling them elsewhere for finishing. And it's how that then plays out in terms of what the biodiversity benefits are of those animals and or what the carbon emissions of those animals are within different parts of that chain. And I'm not sure how that plays out, but certainly in the dairy sector, we're seeing much more vertical integration eh, because of this issue about eh, trying to reduce food I think
4: I have a few guys I deal with who are Tesco producers eh, for, for dairy. And I think in terms of what the future for, subsidy the requirements whole farm plans and carbon audits and things they've they've got them all and more already and and many of their there was a while when promar was coming in to do to audit their accounts to come up with the cost of production model of pricing and there was a lot of uncertainty as to why that was happening and the impact it might have on their businesses and actually it's force them to be better and they know their costs they're they're, you know they're they do compare they do benchmark really well and I, I think we probably as a beef and sheep industry we've been scared of that and we've been really insulated by the way the market works for us but I like you Stephen I think that job is going to change and the story of I mean Basil Lomans talked his whole career about the importance of communication in the supply chain for beef and it's no better now than it was when Basil started in in most cases so there's some good examples but in most cases uh, you sell your stores and walk away so it's going to change
2: i i would i would agree that that change is inevitable in, in some senses and um, the, the the key in all of this is how you extract value from that supply chain so are retailers are consumers willing to pay that extra money uh, that that is associated with the additional costs so the, so the dairy industry knows that none of this comes free. Uh, you have to do that. And and some of the some of the, the the processors, the milk processors are actually paying those premium to the farmers. The key is can we get that and extract that value in all of the other sectors.
3: The concern that some producers will maybe have is that they've kind of seen this before, that uh these standards they become a pre- they start off as a premium and then suddenly they just end up as the standard uh and maybe the producer will feel they're 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 incurring the costs
2: um. yeah, and I get that, but remember quite often quite often when you do that, then the transition is the thing that's the most costly mm-hmm. because once you transition and you get used to something, there is no additional cost or there's limited additional cost, and you probably see that in a schemes where you know people that entered an a scheme ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. Um, the initial costs, they had to incur initial costs up front in terms of fencing areas off and maybe reducing their stock a little bit, whereas now that's just a given. So, you know, they get used to these things and it just becomes the new norm. Um, and I think that will happen in quite a lot of these instances And um, it, it, once these new things come in. Um, again, it comes back to, can we extract value from a pre- for a premium product? Because, you know, uh, our sector um, is very good at telling everybody and, and their, and their dog, um about how qu- high quality food we produce uh, to the highest standards that we produce in this country. So if that is truly the case, then we should be trying to extract value on those fronts, uh, not just domestically, but internationally mm, as well.
3: Carrots always much better than stick. There's no doubt about that.
2: Indeed. And again, the, the key here is Scottish government or government policy is, um, Bridges that gap. So if the the supply chain isn't actually paying premium and paying the true additional cost for it, that's what we would call market failure in economics. And that's what government's role is to do, is to, to fill in where market failure occurs.
4: I'm just picking up on what George said about the, the premium, like the when farm assurance came in it was a premium and then it became a, a standard that's become you know it's the ingrained in what we do i think and maybe it's an, opti- an optimist view but there's a lot of conflict in terms of land use there's a lot of you know land coming out of production globally and there's an increase in population i think for those who engage in this and and go with it so if you're if you're young and enthusiastic just now and embrace this stuff i'm not saying we're never going to have a bad land price year or the price of milk's never going to go down but I do feel that we're we're in a place where we're going to be providing a premium product to start with, a eh, and actually the rewards sh- should be built into the system for that. I know it's not; eh, we're still food producers, we're still price takers, but if we can provide what the market's looking for, there's a lot of people out there who are not going to be providing what the what the market's looking for. Yeah, so
2: what you're what you're describing there is early adopters benefit most. Um, So those that adopt to different things that become embedded in the long term, it's the early adopters that actually gain the most out of the system. Uh, Whereas those that come in at the end, uh, quite often the money for transition has disappeared um, and the benefits are are kind of less uh, if if, if there are any. Whereas those that jump at start tend to get the biggest gain. Uh, And you're right in a sense in that... um, the, you know, if you start looking at the production, the sort of the beef numbers coming out of Ireland, the sheep numbers in Europe, you know, there, there's a decline in all of that. So um, the population isn't isn't getting any any smaller. Um, so there's going to be continued demand for these things. It's whether or not the demand profile stays the same for ruminant livestock uh, v plant based products. All of those things are, are are coming down the tracks as well. But you no, know, I I would tend to be in agreement in that. The, the the future doesn't look as bleak as some people might have thought it might uh, 10 years ago.
4: What about, so I was at NFU conference, NFUS conference last week, and it was a very interesting couple of days, but what was quite striking there is it was, it was quite a lot of older people there. There was very few young people, and it was it got me thinking, we never actually mentioned it at NFU, there was a lot to cover, to be fair, there was a lot of ground covered but we never talked about future generations new entrants and i know we've we've beaten the new entrant drum hard for a long time but there's there's precious few young people entering the industry is there anything coming forward stevie that's you know designed to to encourage people to get involved or is that has that ship sailed in the previous scheme as well no
2: i mean uh, again remember the government the uh, it's a All of policy development is a phasing uh, and the phase, the first phase is this framework that they've got got through the bill uh, that's sitting in front of Parliament just now, so so the framework is there. Now, if stakeholders, farmers, crofters, society think that generational renewal is a key thing and remember that's one of the key objectives of the EU's cap, it remains as generational renewal. we could embed that and we should potentially be embedding young farmer premium like we used to have or we still do in the basic payment scheme uh, and also in any capital grant scheme and you know i've been a long advocate that um in this point it's classified as tier three we need to have transformational support and that transformational support could be to do with new entrance support it could be some people have advocated for uh, exit schemes Uh, And also things like farm diversification that can also bring the next generation into a business uh, in some form, whilst uh, the longer transition takes place. The the First Minister announced that a minimum of 70% of total support uh, will be in the form of direct payments or the equivalent of what we're talking about as direct payments just now uh, in future schemes. And then um, in the parliamentary announcement, so um, Ms. Goujeon that morning um, replied to a question in Parliament. She also announced that LFA support, or the future of LFA support, whatever that may look like, uh, will be in Tier 2, which probably took some people by surprise. So that that means that future LFA support will be uh, entirely conditional, if that's the case. Uh, meaning that there will be uh, certain uh, environmental uh, greenhouse gas emissions or or activity uh, conditions placed on it. Um, so so that that's quite an important announcement. Um, the current, by my reckoning, the current kind of split is eighty six percent in tiers one and two. Elfas currently is about ten percent of of support payments. So. Uh, by, by the announcement, a minimum of eighty uh, percent. It's not quite where we are, but it's as it's probably as good as good as where we could have wished for, um, given that um, some people were calling for seventy-five percent of support to be put into, to, into targeted tier three measures. So I, th- I think it's a that that was a fair a fair announcement, but the, the bit that. The industry says, "Oh, we've won won a thing for food. Or we've won a budget allocation for food production." You know, I did tweet about the alternative headline could be that forty um, percent, a minimum of forty percent uh, of of support will come with uh, significantly more environmental conditions. That that's the the, the message that underpins that headline. Uh, that nobody seems to have picked up on because that's what tier 2 payments are. Uh, they are going to be conditional environmental payments on biodiversity provisioning and climate change. Uh, not that you have to spend all of the money within that uh, in that pot uh, on those measures, but th- it does come with more sort of ecological focus area type measures.
4: The other million-dollar question that's out there is how much is in the pot, and it's a long time before we know that. But seventy percent is a an indicator, is a it's a concrete um, idea of what, how it's shared out, but we don't know what's actually going to come. Indeed,
2: um, and again, the the current budget for agriculture is only till the end of this UK Parliament, and that is this year. So with the general election coming, regardless of who comes into power, it's a new parliament. And the new parliament will have to make, and whoever's governing, will have to make a commitment as to how much they're willing to spend on agriculture and the environment and biodiversity and all of the things that go alongside it. Um, and once that commitment is made, then we will have a better understanding of what budget looks like from a UK government perspective, to which, of course, um, I, I remember... Michael Gove, long time ago, talked about uh, this will all just come in an allocation to Scotland, and Scotland can decide what it does. Now, you know that I think there's there's more and more understanding that there may need to be ring fencing of agricultural budgets with regards to uh, food production. And you saw an announcement uh, yesterday by Richie Sunak on productivity improvement grants in England, um, all of those kind of things. There's there's now a re, there's a realization at a political level that um, if you probably don't ring fence some of this, then a, biodiversity improvements may not happen, climate change mitigation may not happen, and then food production is put at risk. And just picking up on that Richie Soonhak um, announcement on productivity grants, etc. cetera, um, I, I mean, I hear people in Scotland saying, oh, look at England, they're getting all of these grants, and I'm going, yeah, but you know, their BPS, their basic payment scheme is falling off a cliff face. In Scotland, we can still spend, or farmers and crofters can still spend every single penny that they receive in basic payment in LFS or whatever they get through direct support payments on whatever they want. Now that can be on their farm, it can be on their croft, it could be buying a new car, it can be putting the kids to school, it could be going on holidays, it could be doing whatever you want, investing. In England and Wales, if you're getting a grant, you get a grant and it has to be spent on A, B, C, or D. In Scotland, we can still spend the money we receive on A, B, C, D, E, all the way to the, to, to Z. So, uh, you know, th- those are the realities of how the systems are changing.
1: Do you think in Scotland we might end up at a point similar to England?
2: Um, uh, there's a great deal of similarity um, in, in that both of the well England and Wales you know everybody's trying to make environmental improvements so you know the EU EU's model is about environmental improvements as well. Um, will we end up there? There seems to be a realisation in Scotland that direct support is required uh, I think people tend to forget that 85% of Scotland is less favoured, designated as less favoured area. We don't have the best quality land in the world Whereas in England you have uh, the opposite; only fifteen percent of English farmland is is designated as less favoured area. And there's a a recent um, or there's a, a recent expose by the, the Guardian, the fact that um, hill and upland units uh, that you know under all of the schemes they are the ones that would struggle the most, uh, and that's what we've got a lot of we have a lot of hill and upland units. So the direct support commitments that the Scottish government have made uh, are, are quite vital to the long-term future uh, of Scottish agriculture, making sure that there's activity in these areas, which then underpins communities uh, and wider economic activity and landscapes, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Thinking on a landscape scale, I noticed um, there was a reduction in the funding towards um Tree planting. I think it was forty one percent reduction in budget. Is this something that's likely to continue because farming is such an important uh, part of Scotland?
2: Um, I don't know. Um, the, uh, the you know the government are in a difficult position in that they've got finite budgets, and um, you know that the money certain monies had been taken out of agricultural budget to to fill. Fill gaps and is going to be put back in uh, the forestry with the advent of institutional investors. Um, I would and I I haven't spoken to officials about this, but I can imagine there'll be there would be some thinking that a lot of these institutional investors that are going to uh, be doing carbon offsetting by planting trees, etc., can can they afford it themselves or be enter private schemes? So the tree planting may well continue. Uh, however, that doesn't help some of the, so the nurseries that have ramped up production of trees uh, and saplings, that then are that are looking at this big reduction in the planted grant aid money, that that they are reliant on uh, for their businesses to survive. So there's a challenge there, and I I don't know what the, you know how you weigh how the government are weighing all of those things up. Um, at this moment in time but uh, whether that's a long-term commitment uh, i wouldn't have imagined so because in the climate there's a climate change plan update or a new climate change plan that's been drafted just now i can't imagine that, uh, that scotland can achieve uh, the, its targets without without c- continued tree planting as, as much as some farmers do not like that
4: There is only so long we can do that, though, isn't there? You know, there's—I know we're a long way off. There's a lot of scope, but down the line, ultimately, there's only so much land to 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 do that. And it, to me, it seems like the tree planting thing is the short medium term story. But we do, as a whole society, need to get our act together. You know, in every industry, and and offsetting carbon credits and things is is an option just now. But it can't be the long term a solution to all the life's problems can it um
2: yeah i well it's all about common sense robert and you know hopefully we're not going to plant them on the very best quality land in scotland because we should be producing food on that although we do have a propensity to actually build blooming, blooming homes on it um, and and you know the amount of development that seems to be happening in and around some of the bigger big villages and towns and not even big ones but the expansion of urban Scotland um, onto better quality land is quite worrying at times. Um, But we're not planting there, we're not planting on hilltops, we're not planting in peatland. So you're talking about this squeezed middle ground and that's of course where uh, you've got these marginal arable units or, or mixed units and that's where beef thrives. Uh, and that's where a lot of the tensions come from, that people see it as either or, it doesn't need to be either or. We seem to have developed a propensity to grow or, or to plant huge areas or very large plantations. And we could actually be planting lots of small uh, plots that are beneficial in terms of uh, um, the, the, in terms of shelter, but also in terms of integrating into the farm. But we don't see it that way. Um, and partly we don't see it that way because the grant sports that we used to have the farm woodland premium scheme and we used to have shelter brand belt grants going way back. And you saw people adapt to that, you saw people utilizing that and planting small areas. And um, so, uh, again, I, I don't think it, there needs to be an either or, but I mean, I've always sat there and thinking 18,000 hectares over 50 years is a big, big, big area um, in terms of total percentage of scotland eh, and it's all going on a squeeze middle so you know th- there has to be some long-term thinking in this
3: i know we often get you know inquiries about woodland and woodland grants and that and back to this shelter belts and folk harken back to that from 30 40 years ago whenever um and there is definitely an appetite there for very you know obviously small scale planting um it's surprising actually some of the people that ask for it because you do <laughs> You just don't think it; they would even think about it. You know, every 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 square inch is a prisoner sort of thing with production. But uh, no, there's definitely an appetite out there, um, but it just seems to be being missed at the moment.
2: Um, again, that, that's something that policy need to hear, um, and maybe the industry's not strong enough, or, or or the messaging isn't strong enough coming out of the industry about the need for uh, smaller scale uh, schemes. Uh, I, and again, I, I, you know, you understand where the government are coming from, in that the they've got a target. Getting some big plantations in the ground is, is sometimes easier. It's easier to deal with administratively, uh, but in terms of landscape, in terms of habitats and uh, corridors, and giving a mosaic, um, then small, smaller, lots of small, dotted around the place, surely has to be better um, in the long term than. Than monoculture or or I shouldn't say monoculture because the the forestry industry is the way it plants trees has developed dramatically to to better uh, to be better designed and of mixed species and, and open areas etc. But yeah, all of this needs to come into longer term policy thinking.
4: I was in a farm yesterday and they were um, planting a lot of hedges, and I I do think you know the hedge. Fully punches above its weight in terms of biodiversity. There's a carbon story to tell as well. There's a nice landscape story. Everybody's quite into them. And I had asked what whether they had got funding. And they said, yes. And I said, what schemes that through? And they said, oh, no, it's first milk paid for them. So it's, it's interesting seeing how that, just back to what we were saying earlier, is the market is really, really stepping up to the plate if you're close to them and you've got a relationship with them. They want you to do this. They want this story to happen. So uh, I think, uh, you know, hoping that the market steps up is what we were saying earlier and i think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's what's actually happening
2: and that's where your 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 ver- vertical integration and your supply chain comes in is so that in this uh, advent of these future scope three emissions where cradle to grave then guess what everybody's after sequestration on the farm because nobody else can sequester everybody's after uh, reduction in the emissions on the farm because actually most of the supply chains probably technically pretty efficient as it is uh, for them to reduce their emissions is going to be quite challenging and that's particularly when you're talking about ruminant livestock the, you know one area that i certainly think that we as a country potentially need to consider how we deliver more on is the peatland restoration work and you know you you know the more i go around and speak to people about it the more the more you understand how challenging that is. Yet. You know, some of the landscapes you're seeing, you're thinking, my word. Um, it's, not just, it's not just that it's exposed peatland, it's the fact that it could slide off a blue mountain top or a hilltop and you have peat slides. And I you know I'm in Shetland just now and I was driving up the road and I'm thinking, you know, that looked like a relatively new peat, peat slide up here. So stabilising that peatland and getting it restored is, is imperative as well.
1: It's been great hearing um, from you today, Stephen but what could farmers go out and do now?
2: Um, So, for sure, change is coming. And one of the changes that we're pretty certain of is this whole farm plan, because the Cabinet Secretary made that announcement last year at the Royal Island Show. And we know within that that the entry-level standards will include that you need to do a carbon audit, you need to start doing... Soil testing, if you're not already doing so, um, all of those elements, Um, and those elements currently are supported, or some of those elements are currently supported. Um, So it's important that people actually consider, if you've not done a carbon audit before, get it done. Why? Because if there's a condition in 2025, this year's carbon audit will already get you over that hurdle it will qualify in my eyes. I don't think there's been a ministerial announcement at that level yet, but in my eyes, it would automatically make, uh, qualify you for that. Um, and the other thing is that we are kind of waiting, awaiting an announcement on calving, inter- calving interval conditionality for the, the Scottish Suckler Beef Support Scheme. Uh, so within the preparing for sustainable farming uh, grants, there's also, you can get some bull testing uh, done as well. I always, it always sticks in my mind that Nigel Miller uh, once told me that one in five bulls are sub-fertile in Scotland in the beef sector. And I kind of thought, well, if the tractor didn't start once once a week, would you just accept that or would you go and get it fixed?
1: No, that's definitely good advice, Stephen for preparing for sustainable farming there is a deadline of the 29th of February 2024 if you did any of the actions um, for the carbon audit soil analysis or an animal health and welfare intervention in 2023 the scheme is running through 2024 so if you didn't do anything last year it's a good opportunity to take part this year great to speak to you all thank you
2: thank you
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rural Roundup. We'll see you back here on the 13th of March with our next episode.
3: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more brought you in association with the Scottish Government.